0: Chapter 3, Part 1 of The Star of Gettysburg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick The Star of Gettysburg by Joseph A. Altshaler Chapter 3, Jackson Moves, Part 1 It was impossible for Harry to restrain a vivid feeling of exultation. He was in the open, and he was leaving the Northern Cavalry far behind. Nor was it likely that any further enemy would appear now between him and Jackson's army. Chance had certainly favored him. What a glorious goddess Chance was when she happened to be on your side. Then everything fell out as you wished it. You could not go wrong. The horse he rode was even better than the one he had lost, and a pair of splendid pistols and holsters lay across the saddle he could account for two enemies if need be but when he looked back he saw no pursuers in sight and he slowed his pace in order to not to overtax the horse not long afterwards he saw the southern pickets belonging to the vanguard of the invincibles st Clair himself was with them and when he saw harry he galloped forward uttering a shout st Clair had known of the errand upon which harry had gone with sherburne and now he was alarmed to see him riding back alone worn and covered with dust what's the matter harry he cried and where are the others nothing's the matter with me and i don't know where the others are but arthur i've got to see general jackson at once where is he harry's manner was enough to impress his comrade who knew him so well this way he said not more than four or five hundred yards there that's general jackson's tent Harry weeped from his horse as he came near and made a rush for the tent. The flap was open, but a sentinel who stood in front put up his rifle and barred the way. A low monotone came from within the tent. The general's praying, he said. I can't let you in for a minute or two. Harry took off his hat and stood in silence while the two minutes lasted. All his haste was suddenly gone from him. The strong affection that he felt for Jackson was tinged at times with awe, and this awe was always strongest when the general was praying. He knew that the prayer was no affectation, that it came from the bottom of his soul, like that of a crusader asking forgiveness for his sins. The monotone ceased. The soldier took down his rifle, which was held like a bar across the way, and Harry, entering, saluted his general, who was sitting in the half-light at a table reading a little book, which the lad guessed was a pocket Bible. Harry saluted, and Jackson looked at him gravely. You've come back alone, it seems, he said, but you've obeyed my instructions not to come without definite news? I have, sir. What have you seen? We saw the main army of General McClellan crossing the Potomac at Berlin. He must have had there a hundred thousand men and three or four hundred guns, and others were certainly crossing elsewhere. You saw all this with your own eyes? I did, sir. We were watching them for a long time. They were crossing on a bridge of boats. You are dusty, and you look very worn. Did you come in contact with the enemy? Yes, sir. Many of their horsemen were already on this side of the river, and this morning I was pressed very hard by a troop of their cavalry. I gained a wood, but just at the edge of it my horse was killed by a chance shot. Your horse killed? Then how could you escape from cavalry? Chance favored me, sir. I dodged them for a while in the woods and underbrush, helped by gullies here and there, and when I came to the edge of the wood, only a single horseman was near me. I hid behind a tree and knocked him out of the saddle as he was riding past. I hope you did not kill him. I did not. He was merely stunned. He will have a headache for a day or two, and then he will be as well as ever. I jumped on his horse and galloped here as straight and fast as I could. A faint smile passed over Jackson's face. "'You were lucky to make the exchange of horses,' he said, "'and you have done well. "'The enemy comes, and our days of rest are over. "'Do you know anything of Captain Sherburne and his troop?' "'Captain Sherburne, under the urgency of pursuit, "'scattered his men in order that some of them, my least, "'might reach you with news of General McClellan's crossing. "'I was the first detached, and so I know nothing of the others. "'And also you were the first to arrive.' i trust that captain sherburne and all of his men will yet come we can ill spare them i truly hope so sir you need food and sleep get both you will be called when you are needed you have done well lieutenant kenton thank you sir harry saluting again withdrew he was very proud of his general's commendation but he was also on the verge of physical collapse he obtained some food at a campfire nearby ate it quickly wrapped himself in borrowed blankets, and lay down under the shade of an oak. Langdon saw him just as he was about to close his eyes, and called to him, Here, Harry, I didn't know you were back. What's your news? That McClellan and the Yankee army are this side of the Potomac. That's all. Good night. He closed his eyes, and although it was near the middle of the day, with the multifarious noises of the camp about him, he fell into the deep and beautiful sleep of the tired youth who has done his duty. He was still asleep when Captain Sherburne, worn and wounded slightly, came in and reported also to General Jackson. He and his main force had been pursued and had been in a hot little brush with the Union cavalry, both sides losing several men. Others who had been detached before the action also returned and reported. All of them, like Harry, were told to seek food and sleep. Harry slept a long time, and the soldiers who passed making many preparations never disturbed him. But the entire southern army under Lee assisted by his two great corps commanders jackson and longstreet was making ready to meet the army of the potomac under mcclellan the spirit of the army of northern virginia was high and the news that the enemy was marching was welcome to them when harry awoke the sun had passed its zenith and the cool october shadows were falling he yawned prodigiously stretched his arms and for a few moments could not remember where he was or what he had been doing quit yawning so hard said happy tom langdon you may get your mouth so wide open you'll never be able to shut it again what's happened what's happened while you were asleep well it'll take a long time to tell it mr rip van winkle you have slept exactly a week and in the course of that time we fought a great battle with mcclellan were defeated by him chiefly owing to your comatose condition and have fallen back on richmond carrying you with us asleep in a wagon if you will look behind you you will see the spires of richmond oh harry harry why did you sleep so long and so hard when he needed you so much? oh shut up Tom if ever talking matches became the fashion I mean to enter you and all of them for the first prize now tell me what happened while I was asleep and tell it quick well me lad since you're high and haughty not to say dictatorial about it I as proud as haughty as thyself defy thee George you tell him about all of it Dalton grinned a grave and serious youth himself he liked Langdon's perpetual fund of chaff and good humor. "'Nothing has happened, Harry, while well, you slept,' he said, "'except that the army, or at least General Jackson's corpse, "'had been making ready for a possible great battle. "'We're scattered along a long line, "'and General Lee and General Longstreet are some distance from us, "'but our generals don't seem to be alarmed in the least. "'It's said that McClellan will soon be between us and Richmond, "'but I can't see any alarm about that either.'" "'Why should there be?' said St. Clair, who was also sitting by. "'It would make McClellan's position dangerous, not ours.' "'Arthur puts it right,' said Langdon. "'When we go to our tents, show him the new uniform you've got, Arthur. "'It's the most gorgeous affair in the Army of Northern Virginia, "'and it cost him a whole year's pay in Confederate money. "'Have you noticed, Harry, that the weakest thing about us is our money? "'We're the greatest marchers and fighters in the world, but nobody.' Not even our own people seem to fall in love with our money. I suppose that General Jackson is now ready to march whenever the word should come, said St. Clair. The boys, as far as I see, have returned to their rest and play. There's that Cajun band playing again. And it sounds mighty good, said Harry. Look at those Louisiana Frenchmen dancing. The spirits of the swarthy Acadians were irrepressible. As they had danced in the great days in the valley in their spring, now they were dancing when autumn was marching into winter, and they sang the songs of the South, some of which had come from old Brittany through Nova Scotia to Louisiana. Harry liked the French blood, and he had learned to like greatly these men who were so much underestimated in the beginning. He and his comrades watched them as they whirled in the dance, clasped in one another's arms, their dark faces glowing, white teeth flashing and black eyes sparkling, He saw that they were carried away by the music and the dance, and as they floated over the turf they were dreaming of the far and sunny land and the girls they had left behind them. He had been reared in a stern and more northern school, but he had learned long since that a love of innocent pleasure was no sign of effeminacy or corruption. "'Good to look on, isn't it, Harry?' said St. Clair. "'Yes, and good to hear, too. "'Come with me into this little dip, and I'll show you another sight that's good to see.' there was a low ridge on their right crested with tall trees and dropping down abruptly on the other side a little distance on rose another low ridge but between the two was a snug and grassy bowl and within the bowl sitting on the dry grass with a chessboard between them were colonel leonidas talbert and lieutenant colonel hector st hilaire they were absorbed so deeply in their game that they did not notice the boys on the crest of the bank looking over at them Colonel Leonidas Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire had not changed a particle, to the eyes at least, in a year and a half of campaigning in tremendous battles. They may have been a little leaner and a little thinner, but they were lean and thin men anyhow. Their uniforms, although faded and worn, were neat and clean, and as each sat on a fragment of log, while the board rested on a stump between them, they were able to maintain their dignity. It was Colonel Talbot's move, his hand rested on the red king, and he pondered long. Lieutenant Colonel Saint Hilaire waited without a sign of impatience. He would take just as long a time with his knight or bishop, or whichever the white men he choose to use. I confess, Hector, said Colonel Talbot at length, that this move puzzles me greatly. It would puzzle me too, Leonidas, were I in your place, said Lieutenant Colonel Saint Hilaire. "'but you must recall that just before the second Manassas "'you seemed to have me checkmated "'and that I have escaped from a most dangerous position. "'True, true, Hector. "'I thought I had you, but you slipped from my net. "'Those were, beyond all dispute, "'most skillful and daring moves you made. "'It pays to be bold in this world.' "'Do you know,' whispered St. Clair to Harry, "'that this unfinished game is the one they began "'last spring in the valley? "'We saw them playing it in a fence corner before action.' They've taken it up again at least four or five times between battles, but neither has ever been able to win. However, they'll fight it out to a finish if a bullet doesn't get one first. They always remember the exact position in which the figures were when they quit. Colonel Talbot happened to look up and saw the boys. Come down, he said, and join us. It is pleasant to see you again, Harry. I heard of your mission, its success, and your safe return. Hector, I suppose we'll have to postpone the next stage of our game until we whip the Yankees again, or are whipped by them. I believe I can yet rescue that Red King. Perhaps so, Leonidas. Undoubtedly, you'll have plenty of time to think over it. Which is a good thing, Hector. Which is undoubtedly a good thing, Leonidas. They put the chessmen carefully in a box, which they gave to an orderly with very strict injunctions. Then both, after heaving a deep sigh, transformed themselves into men of energy, action, precision, and judgment. Every soldier and officer in the trim ranks of the Invincibles was ready. But action did not come as soon as Harry and his friends had thought. We made preliminary movements to mass his army for battle, and then stopped. The spies reported that the political wire-pulling, that bane of the North, was at work. McClellan's enemies at Washington were active and his indiscreet utterances were used to the full against him. Attention was called again and again to his great overestimates of Lee's army and to the paralysis that seemed to overcome him when he was in the presence of the enemy. Lincoln, the most forgiving of men, could not forgive him for his failure to use his full opportunity at Antietam and destroy Lee. The advance of McClellan stopped. His army remained motionless, while October passed into November. The cold winds off the mountain swept the last weaves from the trees, and Harry wondered what was going to happen. Then St. Clair came to him, precise and dignified in manner, but obviously anxious to tell important news. What is it, Arthur asked Harry? We've got news straight from Washington that McClellan is no longer commander of the Army of the Potomac. What they've nobody to put in his place, but they have somebody to put in his place, just the same. Name, please. Burnside. Ambrose E. Burnside. With a beautiful fringe of whiskers along each side of his face. Well, we can beat any general who wears side whiskers. After all, I'm glad we don't have McClellan to deal with again. Wasn't this Burnside, the man who delayed a part of the Union attack at Antietam, so long that we had time to beat off the other part? The same. Then I'm thinking that he'll be caught between the hammer and the anvil of Lee and Jackson, just as Pope was. Most likely. Anyhow, our army is rejoicing over the removal of McClellan as Commander-in-Chief of the Army of the Potomac. That's something of a tribute to McClellan, isn't it? Yes, goodbye, George. We've had two good fights with you, seven days in Antietam, with Pope in between at the Second Manassas. And now, ho, for Burnside! The reception of the news that Burnside had replaced McClellan was the same throughout the Army of Northern Virginia. The officers and soldiers now felt that they were going to face a man who was far less of a match for Lee and Jackson than McClellan had been, and McClellan himself had been unequal to the task. They were anxious to meet Burnside. They heard that he was honest and had no overweening opinion of his own abilities. He did not wish to be put in the place of McClellan, preferring to remain a division or corps commander. Then, if that's so, said Sherburne, we've won already. If a man thinks he's not able to lead the army of the Potomac, then he isn't. Anyhow, we'll quickly see what will happen. But again, it was not as soon as they had expected. The northern advance was delayed once more, and Jackson with his staff and a large part of his force had moved to Winchester, the town that he loved so much and around which he had won so much of his glory. His tent was pitched beside the Presbyterian manse, and he and Dr. Graham resumed their theological discussions in which Jackson had an interest so deep and abiding that the great war rolling about them, with himself as a central figure, could not disturb it. The coldness of the weather increased, and the winds from the mountains were often bitter, but the new stay in Winchester was pleasant, like the old. Harry himself felt a throb of joy when they returned to the familiar places. Despite the coldness of mid-November, the weather was often beautiful. The troops, scattered through the fields and in the forest about the town, were in a happy mood. They had many dead comrades to remember, but youth cannot mourn long. They were there in ease and plenty again, under a commander who had led them to nothing but victory. They heard many reports that Burnside was marching and that he might soon cross the Rappahannock, and they heard also that Jackson's advance to Winchester with his corps had created the deepest alarm in Washington. The North did not trust Burnside as a Commander-in-Chief, and it had great cause to fear Jackson. Even the North itself openly expressed admiration for his brilliant achievements. Reports came to Winchester that an attack by Jackson on Washington was feared. Maryland expected another invasion. Pennsylvania, remembering the daring raid which Stuart had made through Chambersburg, one of her cities, picking up prisoners along the way, dreaded the coming of a far mightier force than one Stuart who led. At the capital itself it was said that many people were packing, preparatory to fleeing into the farther north. But Harry and his comrades thought little of these things for a few days. It was certainly pleasant there in the little Virginia town. The people of Winchester and those of the country far and wide delighted to help and honor them. Food was abundant, and the crisp cold strengthened and freshened the blood in their veins. The fire and courage of Jackson's men had never risen higher. Jackson himself seemed to be thinking but little of war for a day or two. His inseparable companion was the Presbyterian minister, Dr. Graham, to whom he often said that he thought it was the noblest and grandest thing in the world to be a great minister. Harry, as his aide, being invariably near him, was impressed more and more by his extraordinary mixture of martial and religious fervor the man who prayed before going into battle and who was never willing to fight on sunday would nevertheless hurl his men directly into the cannon's mouth for the sake of victory and would never excuse the least flinching on the part of either officer or private it seemed to harry that the two kinds of fervor in jackson the martial and the religious were in about equal proportions and they always inspired him, with a sort of awe. Deep as were his affection and admiration for Jackson, he would never have presumed upon the slightest familiarity, nor would any other officer of his command. Yet the tender side of Jackson was often shown during his last days in his beloved Winchester. The hero-worshipping women of the South often brought their children to see him, to receive his blessing, and to say when they were grown that the great jackson had put his hands upon their heads harry and his three comrades of his own age who had been down near the creek were returning late one afternoon to headquarters near the manse when they heard the shout of many childish voices end of chapter three part one